Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Guardian. As voters prepare to head for the polls for Super Thursday, party leaders are facing their first electoral test since 2019. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. The job of rebuilding the Labour Party was never going to be completed in a year or so. I don't think anybody realistically um, thought that, but these are a very, very important set of elections for us. Tomorrow marks a very busy day at the ballot box. Voters go to the polls in council elections across England. There's a key parliamentary by-election in Hartlepool, mayoral elections and elections to the Welsh Assembly and the Scottish Parliament. With some 5,000 seats up for grabs, the stakes for the two biggest parties are high. Keir Starmer in particular will be looking to see whether his claim that Labour is under new leadership has made any impact on the voters. While in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon is looking for the endorsement she needs to make a renewed push for an independence referendum. So how have politicians been trying to win over the electorate? We'll review their campaigns. Pollsters have been working tirelessly trying to predict the results ahead of time, but how easy is it to project the outcome of such a complicated set of elections? Our political correspondent Aubrey Allegretti looks at the art of polling and asks Emily Gray and Joe Twyman about places to watch out for and what these elections could mean for the union. Plus, Northern Ireland commemorated its 100th anniversary this week, so we consider where the fragile politics goes from here. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. So, for a roundup of the latest ahead of the elections on Thursday, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee. It's lovely to have you on, Polly. Let's have a look, shall we, at how the various parties have been campaigning in in the run up to those elections. So lockdown measures have been eased a bit and and politicians have been able to get out and about again. Twitter has been full of pictures of, you know, MPs leafleting various parts of the country, which has been quite, quite reassuring in a way. But how hard has it been for them to campaign, do you think, in this strange period? I think it has been hard when you can't have big meetings. People are a bit cautious about meeting each other. But nevertheless, there has definitely been a sense of opening up and actual real face-to-face encounters between canvassers and uh, voters, which has been an improvement. But uh, I think all eyes have been focused on Hartlepool, where both Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson have piled in time after time. And that looks as if it's been going to be used as the pivotal point. Yes, it really does, because it's very unusual for an opposition to lose a seat to a sitting government, isn't it, between general elections? 
It certainly is. And uh, Labour has been careful from the beginning to say it'll be tough. And when you look back on the previous records, Hartlepool has never really been that solid a seat. You know, it's nearly always been a split vote. And this time, you know, it's just Tories. It's not Tories and Brexit Party, Tories and UKIP. Makes it even harder for Labour. So I think Labour have been very careful to say, certainly off the record, that they don't think they're going to win it. And on the record, Keir Starmer this week saying it's going to be very hard. Yeah, absolutely. Have there been any memorable moments from the campaigns that you pick out, Polly? It's it's sort of, you know, as I say, there's lots of leafleting, but as you say, there haven't been speeches and things. I mean, I think of Keir Starmer being driven out of a pub in Bath, poor man. But apart from that, have there been any moments that have stuck in your mind? Well, being driven out of a pub in Bath was bad news. I do think that this is going to be something that's going to happen increasingly to politicians, where anybody can make a name for themselves by having a go, by making a photo opportunity, attacking a politician, you know, people throwing eggs at Ed Miliband, that kind of thing. And it's a cheap, low gesture. But it does seem to work news-wise, and it's very risky for them. Meeting voters is dangerous. And of course, Boris Johnson is quite cautious these days about where he ever gets to meet uncensored, unvetted voters. Which is interesting because I remember during the referendum campaign that the, the Vote Leave sort of team used to boast about Boris Johnson, that that was what he was terribly good at, you know, that David Cameron and George Osborne and the sort of key Remain figures didn't want to meet voters and that Boris Johnson loved that sort of knockabout and, you know, chatting to voters. But it, of course, it's rather different when you're uh, the incumbent prime minister, isn't it? Um, let's look at Labour's campaign, Polly. Has Keir Starmer done the right thing focusing so much on this issue of Tory sleaze, do you think? I think he probably has. It's very hard to ignore what amounts to nearest damn corruption. It's very difficult at this moment for an opposition to cope with a really, really euphoric moment in this country. Everybody feels great. I've had two injections. I feel fantastic about it. We're all seeing friends again, even if only in the garden, but very soon indoors as well. It's a very, very strong feel-good time. And Boris Johnson is good at feel-good. So it leaves the opposition to look rather carping, rather downbeat, not very optimistic, constantly pointing out things that are going wrong. It's a very bad time for an opposition. And have we heard enough, do you think, from Labour? I mean, perhaps it's not the moment to do it, but have we heard enough from them about what their alternative upbeat or optimistic or positive vision would be? You know, this sort of what does Keir Starmer stand for question that that I know certainly some on the left of the party feel we don't know enough about that yet. I think that's true. I think it's very difficult to come up with a whole lot of policies so far from a general election, but they could have done a bit more. There doesn't seem to be a totemic policy that... Voters can point to him and say, I know Labour stands for that. Some people have cruelly described this campaign as the bland leading the bland. But on the other hand, it's difficult to know what you could be proposing that would really have what's called cut through. I think the cut through will happen when the reality of the last budget comes into being. After furlough, when a lot of people are losing their jobs, you know, there is hard times ahead between now and the next election. But this could not be a better moment for everybody feeling happy. Mm. What do you think the Conservatives' message has been, Polly, aside from sort of hoping the mood music of the vaccine feeds through to people? There's quite a lot of talk of investment, isn't there? If you look at the Tees Valley mayoral election, for example, there's there's a real sense of, you know, vote Tory and we'll, we'll help your area to get on. Absolutely. Port Barrel, quite extraordinary, the extent to which, and voters have been saying this too, well, if we vote Tory, you know, they'll give us something. 
which is, I think, a fairly new ingredient in British politics. And it's pretty disgusting. One leaflet went out in Southend where the candidate actually said that, you know, a Tory government will be much more inclined to back a a Tory council. At the moment, it's not a Tory council. And I think that feeling permeates an awful lot of northern town seats too. They'll see us proud. They're promising to level up. Well, we don't know what level up means. There's no policy. There's no white paper. They've only just appointed one MP to be an advisor as to what it might mean. Uh, So let's wait and see. I mean, if it means a, a railway line here or there, I don't think that really does it. People have got to feel that something quite radical has happened. They've got to see their high streets springing to life and not all boarded up and full of charity shops. Can he do that? Well, it would take enormous investment and absolutely nothing in the budget plans laid out suggests there is any money for those sorts of things. A bit of capital here and there, a few totemic projects, but not life-changing, high street-changing investments. And it's also about jobs as well, isn't it? It's all very well having a new station or a new whatever it is, a bit of investment on your high street, which is great. But but if you haven't got the job opportunities locally, it doesn't doesn't help very much. Yep. Jobs, green jobs, they've promised. And there will be more of that, I think, you know, building wind farm turbines and all of that. But can they do enough? Well, again, they've got these free ports and they, a lot of those free ports will simply be moving jobs from one side of the line to the other so that they pay less tax once they're inside the free port zone. It'll look very good at first, but unless it really does create genuine new jobs, I'm not sure it'll have all that much of an impact. In the end, if we're in for quite high unemployment once furlough ends, that's going to be very hard for this government to cope with. And Polly, one of the questions Labour will be asking itself, and the Tories too, actually, but looking at the Hartlepool result, is what's happened to all those voters who backed the Brexit party, isn't it? So Hartlepool, of course, was one of those places where the Brexit party, they ran a, a strong candidate, didn't they, and took quite a few votes. Where will those voters go now is one of the big questions we're, we're hoping to find some answer to, isn't it, on uh, when we get the result on Friday morning? Who knows? I mean, the the poll, some of the polls are absolutely hair-raising for Labour. I mean, it's as if a sinkhole was opened up underneath and swallowed the party altogether. In a way, that's quite helpful because anything less than a sinkhole would look a bit better than these very low expectations. But it looks as if most of those Brexit voters are heading towards the Tories at the moment. It's very hard for Keir Starmer because an awful lot of Labour's solid vote desperately wants him to challenge the Brexit deal and to say this was a rubbish deal, we would renegotiate it, this is doing the country terrible harm. But at the moment, most voters don't see the harm being done. It's all under the radar, small businesses not able to export, uh, problems of all kinds, but they're not they're not ones you see on television every night, not those long lorry queues, not empty supermarket shelves. So for the time being, he reckons he's got to shut up about Brexit. But probably by the time of the next election, you know, was the Brexit deal a disaster? Maybe an issue for Labour again. Mm. Talking of sinkholes, Polly, it's interesting. The sinkhole may have opened up under under Labour in parts of the country. The sinkhole seems to have opened up under the Tories in London. Sean Bailey doesn't seem to have any chance of beating Sadiq Khan, as far as we can tell. That's interesting because very few Tories actually wanted to stand because they knew it was going to be a disaster. They knew that it's become a a Labour zone. Sean Bailey bravely took up the challenge, but I think he always knew he didn't have a chance. It's interesting how all the cities are piling up with Labour votes. Labour's best hope is that actually quite a lot of people are now moving out of the cities into the suburbs and all sorts of seats 
say, around London and around some of the other cities that would have been unthinkable, Tory suburban seats now look available to Labour as young graduates move out of city centres that have become too expensive, looking for homes with gardens. Suddenly the geography, the demography of this country begins to look very different. So while tourism making great inroads into what used to be Labour heartlands, Labour, we may see the first signs of Labour making big inroads into Tory heartlands in down in the southwest, along coastal towns. I don't suppose they'll win all that. They won't win councils and they may not win all that many seats, but we may see significant shifts that in four years' time will make a difference. Mm. And Polly, where do the Lib Dems fit into that? Because some of those seats would traditionally, in the southwest and south coast towns, would traditionally have been within touching distance for the Lib Dems, wouldn't they? Ed Davies struggling so far to make much headway, isn't he? He certainly is, and I think Labour would take most of those votes still. I think that uh, it seems that Labour's, wherever Labour gains, it's mostly at Lib Dem's expense. They're not actually gaining very many Tory votes as yet. It's a very odd thought to think that Labour might be, you know, (laughs) gaining in the South, where the warnings from Blair days was how Labour would never win in the South again. Everything feels a bit topsy-turvy right now. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Maybe we spend too much time talking about the Red Wall and not enough talking about some of those interesting places in the South. What about the Greens, Polly? They, they've got a bit of a spring in their step, haven't they? I think they feel they're attracting some Labour voters who might have been put off by the sort of drift away from the Jeremy Corbyn type politics. I think that's certainly true, that... Uh, Labour voters, if they feel they can afford not to vote Labour, or there's no point in voting Labour in lots of places where Tories are bound to win, then Green looks a very good radical option. The Greens are a very attractive party. Caroline Lucas, their only MP, one of the most popular politicians. Uh, So I think it's very tempting to vote Green, and particularly while Labour hasn't really offered any landmark radical policies as yet. Mm. And Polly, we shouldn't leave elections without mentioning Scotland, uh, where there's a hugely significant poll, of course, for the Scottish Parliament. What about the SNP? Has Nicola Sturgeon managed to shake off the inquiries into the Alex Salmon case, do you think, even though Salmon's decided to slightly quixotically launch his own party, hasn't he? It looks as if she has. Salmon's party looks as if it's not going anywhere. Very hard to call on these things. Very interesting, though, that Boris Johnson dare not go to Scotland hasn't been there, told to keep away. Now, if the union is breaking, wouldn't it be a sign? If the UK Prime Minister dare not go to Scotland, doesn't it mean that Scotland is really on its way out sooner or later? It's a pretty ominous foreboding, I think, of what's to come. Absolutely. Uh, Polly Toyby, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. After the break, we turn to the polls and look back at 100 years of Northern Ireland. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. The local and regional elections are the first since the pandemic began and the first electoral test for Labour leader Keir Starmer. So pollsters have been watching with interest how this could all play out. Our political correspondent, Aubrey Allegretti, spoke to two political pollsters to look at their predictions and which places are too close to call. Emily Gray is Managing Director of Ipsos Maurice Scotland and Joe Twyman is Co-Founder and Director of Delta Poll. Thank you both for joining me. Emily, let's start with you. Pollsters must have had a tough time on their hands trying to keep operations running smoothly during a pandemic and, of course, rebuild trust that they're providing reliable indicators of parties' performance, given how far off they've been in some elections. How have you managed to do that work with life disrupted so much for everyone? Well, of course, COVID has been disruptive for everyone. Actually, for pollsters, as we, well, so at Ipsos Mori, we poll by telephone at the moment in Scotland, and there's also lots of online polls as well. So, of course, in terms of the data collection itself, we're able to collect that data just as as we ever were. And certainly towards the start of the pandemic, we're actually seeing that people were at home more actually keener to speak to one of our interviewers than than they might have been otherwise. But I think in terms of the polls, it's interesting to see that the election campaign itself doesn't seem to have made all that much difference to the state of the parties in Scotland. So the only real shift that we've seen over the last few weeks is Scottish National Party support falling back just a little on the constituency vote. But otherwise, the campaign doesn't seem to have shifted things a a great deal to date. Let's then take a closer look at what we think might happen later this week. Both of you, what are we sort of seeing in the polls that, about suggesting which races will be tightest and which some of the candidates will be more confident of winning? Let's start with you, Emily. Well, for me, the two big questions in this Scottish Parliament election are, first, will the SNP win a majority or not? There's no question, of course, that they will be the largest party in the Scottish Parliament again. But the question of whether they get a majority of seats, so the magic number of 65 or more seats in the Scottish Parliament, that, on the basis of current polling at least, does hang in the balance. And we're in a position where actually just a point or two extra support on the constituency vote would make the difference between a majority or not for the SNP. So it really is very tight and that will come down to a few marginal constituencies. And why that will matter so much to the party is that it then, should they win a majority, it does then put increased pressure on the UK government to uh, allow a second independence referendum. I think the second really interesting question for Thursday is the race for second place between the Conservatives and the Labour. So on current polling, again, the I think that the more likely scenario is that the Conservatives will cling on to second place ahead of Labour. But Labour have had a a decent campaign. Anas Sawar, the new Labour leader, has had some pretty positive ratings among voters. But I think the big question for Labour is, can they translate that into increased vote share and into increased seats? Because on the basis of a lot of the polling we've seen so far, while people like him, they're not necessarily going to vote Labour. And of course, the constitutional question is, is still very difficult for Labour. 
Joe, which races do you look most tight ahead of Thursday? I think in, in classic pollster fashion, I'm going to criticise the question. Uh, tight races actually are relatively few and far between in this election. Really, across the country, we have these interesting battles. The county councils that are up for election, for instance, almost all of them are held by the Conservatives. The metropolitan boroughs, almost all of them are held by Labour. And it's unlikely that many of those will change hands. But if you look at the mayoral elections that are up for grabs, I think the Tories will very much want to hold on to the mayors in uh, in West Midlands and Tees Valley, because that's an illustration of how far they have come in terms of broadening their support, and also an illustration of the kind of areas where Labour needs to win longer term if it's going to demonstrate some kind of uh, some kind of broad uh, approach to electoral victory itself. In Wales. I don't think there's much doubt that Labour will win and come first, but will they win an absolute majority? They came too short last time. And then we have various different individual councils that could prove interesting. St Albans, for instance, is an interesting, relatively small area. It's only one council, and so it's not going to make much difference to either party on the night. But that was very close between the Conservatives and the Lib Dems last time around. This time, in a Remain-leaning constituency, can the Lib Dems show some kind of progress under Ed Davey and move that from no overall control to Lib Dem support? And then in Liverpool, where we have the interesting mayoral election there, with all the controversy that was swirling around the Labour candidate who had to resign, all these are individual stories. And, and what makes this election particularly interesting is there's so many of these. Let's start to delve into those races a little bit then, Emily talking about the Scottish Parliament elections on Thursday. How well does Nicola Sturgeon seem to be doing? And crucially, what's voters' motivations for wanting to back her and the SNP? Is it independence or the more complex set of motivations at play? Yeah, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon's personal ratings among voters still remain very high. They have dipped a bit compared with uh, the high point in 2020 when she was widely praised in Scotland for her handling of the pandemic. In Scotland, I think it's really independence plus COVID plus. So, and as ever, you know, the devil is in the detail and it depends how you ask the question. When we ask people which issues are very important, actually independence comes out as the top issue for almost half of Scottish voters. And interestingly, it's most important to Conservative supporters rather than rather than SNP supporters. Uh, but I think that reflects in part how how much the Conservative campaign in Scotland has been about stopping a second independence referendum. And of course, the... The tone from the SNP has been that actually it's about COVID recovery first and then and then a second referendum once the recovery from the pandemic is, is well underway. And Joe, moving south, Welsh voters have obviously been watching the Labour-run government in Cardiff take control of the COVID pandemic. And yet my colleague Stephen Morris has been reporting on this growing movement for independence in Wales. It was obviously once considered a pipe dream, but... Given that Labour's First Minister, Mark Drakeford, is a staunch unionist, is this going to present some difficulties for Labour? And who would stand to lose out from the uh, debate in Wales turning more to like what it is in Scotland, where there's this constant underrunning narrative about independence? Well, I would say the, the situation in Scotland and the situation in Wales in terms of overall support for independence is completely different. It remains very much a, uh, uh, very much a niche issue in Wales. And although there is an official Welsh 
independence movement, there is also a significant movement to abandon the uh, abandon the parliament entirely. And so UKIP, what's left of it, is campaigning along those lines. And uh, and some conservatives, if not actively embracing that idea, then certainly flirting with the idea. And that is almost as popular as the idea of full independence. And so. I don't think that either of those will really resonate on the doorstep for many voters. I also don't think they'll play an important uh, important part in this election. I think Labour's position will be uh, uh, will be certainly maintained and may indeed be improved upon. As I say, their uh, their aim, I would imagine, is to get that absolute majority in the Welsh Parliament. I think that will be a big but not impossible ask. And if they do achieve that, then it will be very much business as usual. And even if they don't achieve it, I doubt there'll be much in the way of significant change. And continuing to move south across the UK down, looking at London's mayoral race, where obviously the ballot paper doesn't use first past the post, does it look like a dead cert that Sadiq Khan will hold on to City Hall? Um, yes, I, I don't think there's really much in the way of doubt that Sadiq Khan will win. The only question is whether he will win the mayoralty outright on the first preference votes. Last time, I think he got 44% from top, off the top of my head. And so will he, will he get the win on the first round or will he have to wait for the second preferences? Any candidate who wanted to win in London would need to outperform the National Party. The only candidate that's been able to do that in the history of the London mayoralty has been Boris Johnson. Uh, And I think most people would agree that Sean Bailey is no Boris Johnson. And finally, to both of you, Emily, we'll start with you first and then go to Joe. What do we know about undecided voters in this election? How much are people still not sure who they should vote for on Thursday? And, And have people actually already made up their minds? I mean, this is fascinating because we could still see last minute swing and particularly it will be interesting to see whether we see more tactical voting in this Scottish Parliament election. So while Alex Salmond's Alaba party are polling in recent polls around 3%, 2 to 3% on, on the list vote, which, you know, if that was replicated across the country, wouldn't be enough for them to return any MSPs. But I think what the advent of the Alaba party has done is kind of remind people of, of the possibility of using the list vote tactically. And so the parties that seem to have benefited from that most so far have been the Scottish Greens, who are looking actually in a pretty strong position ahead of this election. You know, if I'm sure they would be delighted if they were to perform and get the sort of share of the vote on the regional list in particular that the polls are suggesting at the, at the moment. But I think you know public opinion can be volatile, and what we've seen is that one in four still might change their minds ahead of Thursday. So I think keeping an eye on on that will be really important. And I think the issue of turnout will be a really interesting one. The issue with COVID and the impact that that has on postal voting, for instance, and the impact that that has on non-voting, I think could have an impact on the overall result in uh, in some areas. For instance. Will the level of postal voting be increased significantly this time around? And if so, will that mean that lots of people had had voted already in advance of the most recent revelations about the government? And so the impact that COVID has on turnout as well as undecided, I think, is going to be a really interesting, uh, interesting thing to look at come Thursday. Emily Gray and Joe Twyman, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
Now, there's one place in the UK that doesn't hold elections tomorrow, but where it would have been very interesting to see the result. Arlene Foster, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party and First Minister of Northern Ireland, last week announced she would step down following increasing pressure within her own party. This came only days before the Northern Ireland centenary, 100 years since the island of Ireland was partitioned, creating a devolved government for the six northeastern counties, which remained a part of the United Kingdom. Since its founding, politics in the region has been more divisive than most, with nationalist and loyalist leaders often playing a sectarian game. 100 years on, there are still calls for reunification, and Brexit has muddied the constitutional waters even further. On Monday, the day of the centenary commemorations, our Ireland correspondent Rory Carroll spoke to Professor Peter Sherlow, the director at the University of Liverpool's Institute of Irish Studies, and Patricia McBride, Irish news columnist, to reflect on the past, the present, and where the future of Stormont lies. Good morning. We're speaking today on the 100th anniversary of Northern Ireland. We can confidently say that a lot has happened since, and a lot has been happening in recent weeks. Now, we'll come on to the current state of politics shortly, but it seems appropriate to reflect on the centenary first. Uh, give us some context. Peter, how did Northern Ireland come into being, and what is Northern Ireland commemorating today exactly? Well, I assume uh, the two states on the island of Ireland were formed through violence, and uh, the northeast had a predominantly Protestant community, which was very much invested in what then was the British Empire and the, the economy of the northeast being more industrial, uh, framed a lot of that politics. And of course, unfortunately, partition created two sectarian states, which we are living through today. I, I do think it's, it's important to be a bit cautious here about what is being celebrated, because Clearly, for Nazis and Republicans, there's nothing to celebrate. And for sections of unionism, there is something to celebrate, which is their identity and their belief in Northern Ireland as a place. But I think we're also seeing a maturity here in many of the commemorations that are taking place, where unionists and loyalists are actually hosting events this week with Nazis and Republicans to actually make sure that we hear all the voices about what the impact of partition was. So in many ways, I think that that maybe shows us where we have come over 100 years and was certainly the influence of that really important part of the 100 years, which has been the period since 1998. And for you, Patricia, I mean, the Queen, for example, today, she said that the anniversary is an opportunity to reflect on our togetherness and our diversity. Does it feel like that to you? Well, I mean, it's certainly it's an anniversary that exists in history, but I don't think that there'd be many people as Peter has said, within the nationalist and Republican communities, you're going to be celebrating it or commemorating it. And for many people, it will simply pass them by. I mean, the positive words from the Queen about celebrating our, our differences, this is something that, you know, we saw when King George actually opened the Parliament in Stormont a hundred years ago. And, and it was evident from his words at the time that Certainly the British monarchy didn't view the partition of Ireland as a long-term or permanent situation. And it's interesting, you know, to see where we've come in that period of time to where we're now in a space where the conversation about the reunification of the island of Ireland as something that has gained traction. And it's gained traction because of the actions of the British government in terms of the Brexit referendum result and the decision to leave the European Union. So, you know, the, the United Kingdom is less united, is more disunited than it was 100 years ago. 
it's an interesting space to be looking back and saying, where do we go from here? How do you create that opportunity to celebrate, I suppose, the different identities and perspectives that exist on both of these islands? And I suppose in another way, Rory, we must have understand that uh, the last 50 years, there, there has been a lot of uh, uh, changes in Northern Irish society for employment. And we've had, uh, you know, the Good Friday Agreement itself and, and the bringing about of rights and entitlements, Section 75, etc. So at the start of the 100 years, it's, it's framed by violence, conflict, followed by two sectarian states. And then in 1998, we start to try to find a way out of that. And you mentioned the Good Friday Agreement. And Patricia, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Has there been a peace dividend? Because we've been hearing quite a bit from, especially on the loyalist side in recent weeks, in light of the riots, that communities have felt left behind, even abandoned. Is that accurate? Are these communities, have they been somewhat sort of forgotten and left to slide into kind of socioeconomic despair since the Good Friday Agreement? Or is, is this somewhat of a myth? Well, I think there's two different elements to that question, Rory. And the first is around the fact that, yes, there has been a peace dividend in terms of financial support that has come through Westminster from the Irish government's Peace and Reconciliation Fund, but most significantly from the European Union in terms of the peace and interreg funding programs that have supported both um, community development, some infrastructure projects, education and training and community empowerment. And I suppose the other side of that coin is that in some cases we've seen that funding going to perpetuate control of communities and this is particularly strong in loyalist areas where former combatants have managed those community development projects. Some of them have done extremely well but some of them not so well and the end result hasn't been to see an uplift in the advantages for particularly young people living in those communities. But that's something that government needs to tackle as well. There needs to be a better investment strategy so that the job opportunities actually do exist. And historically, that is something that the British government hasn't been very, very good at doing. Because, you know, at the time of the partition of Ireland, the northeastern part of the country was the economic powerhouse of the island with the majority of industry concentrated in and around Belfast and that has slowly been stripped away as we've seen the decline of shipbuilding, of aerospace, of engineering. So those issues of socioeconomic deprivation are much, much greater. The peace dividend needs to be about tackling that. It needs to be about focusing on education and training and on an inward investment to create the jobs that essentially have disappeared from the manufacturing sector. Peter, you may want to pick up on that, and also I just want to get your thoughts on the most recent political developments, which is Arlene Foster, the DUP leader, announcing she will be stepping aside as DUP leader and first minister in coming weeks. I mean, how would you characterize the you know the mood in Northern Ireland? I mean, is there there's been talk of a, a dangerous political vacuum in light of the street disturbances and now the DUP's eruptions? Um, does, does it feel like this is a moment of crisis? Obviously, what we really want to have are debates which are evidence-based. And and I, and I think sometimes there, there's a narrative about the Protestant working class, which is somehow renders it as sort of incapable and, and not fit for purpose in terms of modern society. You know, 72 of our, our 100 most deprived places in Northern Ireland are Catholic. I think Patricia made that point very clearly. You know, we shouldn't be having this conversation about Catholic and Protestant poverty. We should be having conversations about poverty. But there's one thing that is really important, Rory, and, and it comes on to what I'm about to say about the DUP, 
Increasingly, if you look at surveys, young people don't use these labels, nationalist and unionist. Now, they may still have the same constitutional preference as their parents, but there is a massive growth in Northern Ireland in mixed marriages, uh, socialising across the sectarian divide. But going on to the DUP, you know, this clearly is a crisis, not just within the, the DUP and about the direction that it takes, but the crisis within the pro-union community is that 50% of people who are pro-union do not vote for the DUP and the Ulster Unionists. And, and the majority of those people who don't vote for the DUP or Ulster Unionists are socially liberal. And what, what you have here is if the DUP continues this politics of moving towards social conservatism, they're effectively trying to sell somebody a black and white television in the digital age. They're completely out of date and out of touch with the way in which social liberalism is changing and has changed the nature of the pro-union community. I mean, the problems in the DUP aren't new. You know, there's been a number of years where we've seen these factions within the DUP. So, you know, the party has a decision to make about where it goes. It's about the right place is is to look at the wider landscape and not the sort of 1% of conservative fundamentalist Christians who might make up their electorate and say that's the direction we're going to take the party because it won't do itself any favour at the ballot box for having done that. And Peter, I mean, is change inevitable, like constitutional change? I mean, we have demographically, it appears that Catholics may become the biggest single group according to the census being taken this year. We have... Obviously, the post-Brexit situation, the Northern Ireland Protocol, and these shifting senses, as you mentioned earlier, of people's self-identification of nationalism or unionism. I mean, does this mean that change is inevitable? And if so, if you believe in the union, you want to retain the link with the UK, is change necessarily something seen as, as threatening? I think it's all about the capacity for those who wish to reproduce Northern Ireland it's the point in time in which they create a political form or a political conversation, which is about what is the future of Northern Ireland as a place that is agreed and as a place which gets beyond legacy and sectarianism, etc. So, so as much as you could say, you know, let, let's have a conversation in which the British state is no longer in Northern Ireland, you can similarly just have the same conversation, which is let's work, especially through civic engagement, to deliver what I believe the majority of people in Northern Ireland want, which is not the disruption of constitutional change, but what they do want is, and it's the same language as Patricia has, they want a society which is fair and equal. And, and I think that's what you're seeing that is starting to emerge. And also, I think sometimes we confuse Northern Ireland's future as the question of, you know, you know one section wants unity and one section wants to remain in the union. And we call that unionism and nationalism and republicanism. There are many people in Northern Ireland who don't use those labels. And it goes back to the overall issue, which is not just that unionist folks are declining, so have the votes for nationalism and republicanism. There's something happening in this society which has not been framed yet, but I think will be what will actually guide the conversations that will appear. We have to acknowledge, first of all, the constitutional change has already happened, and that has happened as a result of Brexit, because people who were able to very clearly articulate as under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement that they could identify as Irish or British or both, as they so wished, now feel that they've had to make a decision about where their future lies. The question of identity has had to be examined, and people have done that on an individual basis and tried to come up with a way 
that that works for them and works for their families. I think that you know when you talk about equality and justice, I mean, there's been huge strides have been made since the Good Friday Agreement in the society in the north. But even just look at one example about women's rights and the fact that you know, despite the passing of legislation, women in the North still can't access abortion services in the same terms as women in Britain or women in the Republic of Ireland. And the Westminster Parliament has had to intervene in those respects. So the society isn't working for everybody. And Patricia, it's a yes or no question. Do you think there'll be United Ireland in your lifetime? Yes. Um, Peter, United Ireland in your lifetime? Uh, no, I think, and if I could have more than one word, the poll that came out yesterday, 81% of those polled in the Republic and 74% polled in Northern Ireland believe you need at least two-thirds or three-quarters majority. And I think that's important to uh, remember that. It's, it's not as foregone. And if Brexit was a game-changer, then why in the elections we've had during Brexit has the Nationalist Republican vote declined? I, I think these are all important points in which you start to have a debate, which is a debate that's embedded within what evidence tells us is the real public opinion. Peter, Patricia, thank you so much. It's been fascinating and also hopeful, actually. So thank you very much and look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Thank you, Rory. And that's all from us this week. Now, we may not be blowing out birthday candles on the cake these days, but The Guardian is very much celebrating today as we mark 200 years since our first four-page weekly appeared in Manchester. Throughout May, there will be lots of unmissable anniversary journalism for you to enjoy. You can look forward to special commemorative supplements, essays, opinion pieces, fascinating Guardian live events, and of course, some extra special podcasts. For example, make sure to listen to your very own Politics Weekly in a couple of weeks' time, when I convene a round table of former political editors at The Guardian as we rehash some fun tales of what lobby reporting was like back in the day. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Bolly Toynbee, Aubrey Allegretti, Emily Gray, Joe Twyman, Rory Carroll, Peter Sherlow and Patricia McBride. The producer is Yolene Goffan and I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 